The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, we'll be looking at a few verses there and considering some applications from them throughout this lesson this evening in Matthew chapter 12, especially beginning in verse 43, consider these few verses of the words of Jesus. He says that when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Speaking for myself, every time, at least, uh, especially as as a younger uh, man, when I came across angels and demons in the scriptures, that was always something that seemed so intimidating. And I think that that's true for the majority of Christians because. We're not given very much information on angels and demons. And so really, studies of angels and demons can be beneficial. I mean, it is from God's word, but there's only so much we can go into. And sometimes people belabor the point and speak where the Bible has not spoken. And so when Jesus mentions demons, it can kind of be somewhat uh, perplexing, wondering what he's talking about. And especially in a context, what does this have to do with the context? But I think that what he's doing is he's taking... This situation, especially in a time where demons were a very real and present danger and the kingdom of God was exhibited as coming into fruition and coming into the scene by the exercising of demons and the power over these unclean spirits that the Son of God had and those who were his delegates were given the power to have control over in his name. And he's going to use this to display and point out some spiritual truths that are of utmost importance that we especially can apply to ourselves today. And I think what he's doing is he's considering a situation where one might have a spiritual void, and if that spiritual void is not filled with the correct things, that evil things will fill that void, and then that man will be worse off than he was even at the beginning. I think we can further understand this to a greater degree, by considering, obviously, the context, just consider for a few moments the audience that Jesus is saying these things to. In the 38th verse of this same chapter, we remember very well this context when some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And it wasn't that there wasn't enough signs that Jesus had already given, but they were just an evil and adulterous generation that Jesus calls them, where it was never going to be enough. They always wanted to see some new thing, and nothing was ever really going to convince them and, of course, Jesus gave a few points in regard to that. But also, there were multitudes around, not just the scribes and the Pharisees, but in chapter 12 as well, in verse 22, it says that when one was brought to Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, Jesus healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the Son of David? What we have here is a context where there are spiritual leaders of the Jews who are corrupt and who are opposed to Jesus, and then multitudes in general who Jesus was actually beginning to sway to believe in him as the Messiah. 
And what Jesus is going to do is not just in these verses warn the Pharisees and the scribes, but even the multitudes, give them a warning about the things that will come to pass if they don't truly follow him. It might be helpful to consider that Luke's record of this same situation has these few verses concerning this unclean spirit leaving a man and then coming back with seven more even worse than himself. It follows directly after Jesus casts out that demon. And when the scribes and Pharisees considered that and suggested that he did that by the power of Satan, and then, of course, Jesus showed the flaw in their logic. And that's exactly what the audience of the Pharisees was. They were people that were not going to be convinced with anything. They were at that time blaspheming the Holy Spirit in the way that they rejected the clear evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit through the working of miracles, especially the casting out of demons by Jesus, which would indicate that he is who he said he was, yet they weren't going to receive it. And there was great danger in that. As long as they rejected the evidence of the Holy Spirit and all that was there that was given by God, and that last dispensation that was to come, they'd not be forgiven. They'd need to believe those things and then turn to them. But the multitude, we noted in verse 22 and 23, they saw that demon cast out and they understood what it indicated, at least to a certain degree. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? But you see, they weren't fully convinced yet. And not only that, there would be a real danger of them following the influence of their spiritual leaders. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Although they were catching on to the miracles Jesus was performing, they were starting to believe, they were starting to be pulled toward that direction. We remember in Matthew 27 and verse 20, in the scene of the crucifixion, when the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. We see a drastic transition from the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem to just a few moments later, the crowds calling out, crucify him, crucify him. And I think that Jesus kind of touches on one of the reasons why that drastic transformation took place during those few short moments. Why did they accept him at one point? Why were they being persuaded at another point and then just completely rejected him altogether and murdered him by hanging him on that tree? Consider the short little parable, if you will, about that demon. This demon is exercised, but he goes out and finds no other person to inhabit. The house that is considered is obviously metaphorical concerning the man. He returns to that man, and not only does he return to that man, but when he returns to that man, he finds that everything is set up for him better than it ever has been before. It was emptied when he left. It was swept. It was put in order, and it's like a an empty house that is furnished it's ready to sell it's on the market and as soon as it's sold it's ready to live in that's how it was completely uninhabited and so he goes and brings some of his other friends those demons they're even worse than him and so now you have eight demons filling this home where before that man only had one and jesus says this latter end is worse off than the beginning consider the application and the context of the audience jesus is speaking to work much work had been done to earn their belief and fidelity in him and to him. And John chapter 1 and verse 7, John records that Jesus was one who was the light. And John was a man who came for the witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was a light come into the world to bring spiritual enlightenment, to eradicate the darkness and ignorance and sinfulness of those people. 
and bring them into a relationship with God. He had done much teaching. He had performed many miracles. He had obviously cast out demons, showing his power and his dominance as the Son of God and certainly confirming that he was indeed the Messiah. That man that was bearing witness of the light, as noted before, was John the Baptist. He did a lot of work as well, laying the foundation, paving the path for the Lord. They said to him in verse 22 of John 1, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path, the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He had taught the word of God. He had paved the way for the Lord and many went into the wilderness to be baptized by him with the baptism of repentance. So their heart was prepared. They were cultivated to now receive the Messiah, to understand who he was, believe that and buy into his teachings and fill their lives with it. In Matthew 3 and verse 5, it says that Jerusalem and Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him and the Jordan confessing their sins. But there was something that they didn't do after that fact. While they were starting to be persuaded with who Jesus was and they had already submitted to the inspired teaching of John the Baptist, they failed to truly pursue Jesus as the Son of God and as the Messiah who was teaching them the way of life. I think one of the passages that most um, emphatically points that out is John chapter 6, at least in my mind. After Jesus fed 5,000 plus with five loaves of bread and two fish, these individuals saw, much like in Matthew 12, that that indicated that he's someone special. Could this be the son of David? They wanted to take him and make him king, and he departed from them. They eventually found him, though. And remember that they were searching for the physical food he had to offer. So Jesus said in John 6, 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because the God the Father has set his seal on him. The passage continues with this context of Jesus being that food, and he's offering himself, and if you don't consume him, you don't have life. And while it offended them, he explained furthermore what he was talking about in verse 63. He said, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Many of those in that audience no longer followed him. They didn't want what he had to offer. You see, there was a void because sin had been repented of. John did his work, Jesus was doing his work, and it was having an effect on these crowds, these multitudes. They were buying into it to a certain degree, but when push came to shove and they saw what was actually offered them in, in Jesus' ministry and the spiritual food that was there and the spiritual context and nature of the kingdom and salvation he offered, they left it. They didn't fill themselves with his word. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Because leaving that void open, it will be filled with sin. It will be filled with evil. It will be filled with many negative things. You see, the soul who comes to God, even now, must grow in two ways. By subtraction, we've got to repent of our sins and come to God for the remission of those sins. And there's a growth there. We become a new life, a new creation in Christ Jesus. But we must also grow by addition. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. We must be rooted and grounded in the love of God and in his word. If we attempt to grow without first subtracting, we're going to fail. James 1.21 says to lay aside all that evil and overflow of wickedness and receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. You can't grow if you don't first subtract, but also to subtract without ever adding is also to fail because that void is left and a void will be filled 
And if it's not filled with God's word, there's much evil that will take that space. We've got to realize as Christians, we have the duty to subtract sin from our lives and to be forgiven by our confession of those sins and repentance of them. And at the start, baptism into Christ, but also understand our duty and obligation and our soul's need to fill ourselves with God's word. If we're not in both principle and practice, knowledge and application, then we will fail to finish this race successfully. Consider the danger of emptiness, of void. With void, there is a space left open for potential evil. It has space for potential good as well, but equally and perhaps more daunting is this idea that evil could easily fill that space. You might have heard of Aristotle's hypothesis, uh, horror vacui, nature abhors a vacuum. And it was this hypothesis that if there is an empty space, a true vacuum, nature is going to fill it. And it really, there's really no evidence of ever finding a true vacuum, a true empty space. It's against the laws of nature. Physics says that when there's an empty space, matter will fill it, even if it's just the air that we breathe. Even space, as empty as it may be, and of course it's described as a vacuum, really has a lot of somethings in it. The point being that if there's an emptiness, it wants desperately to be filled, and it doesn't matter what it is filled with. It doesn't care. It just wants to be filled. And so there's going to be potential for evil if we don't fill that void with much good. The scripture is silent about a true vacuum spiritually, a true emptiness spiritually. It never talks about a person who can continue in a spiritual emptiness. What it does talk about is that there's always two opposite sides. There's always antithetical principles of the spiritual state. We consider those in a context of fellowship in 2 Corinthians 6 when the Apostle Paul is warning them about the company they're keeping with those false apostles. He says, What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has the unbeliever with the unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And there's many more we could throw in there. Spiritual antonyms. There's only two sides. It never speaks of a middle ground. No one can ride the fence. Jesus talks about that in a context of mammon of riches in Matthew 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And also there is no neutral zone that any can inhabit because when someone takes the neutral position on any spiritual topic, they automatically default to the negative side opposite of God. And Matthew 12 and verse 30, Jesus mentioned this, that he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. If we're not with him, then we are automatically, we default to being against him. And so we need to acknowledge that. If there is some semblance of emptiness spiritually in our lives, it won't be empty for long. It's going to be filled. And how much more should we be on guard about how it's going to be filled? We can't remain empty. But the thing we need to especially be warned about is that that two opposing topics, righteousness especially, or unrighteousness, obedience or disobedience, that that space will be filled, but righteousness takes a concerted effort where unrighteousness just takes sitting back and not doing anything at all. 
if we're not working to fill that void with something from God, it's not going to take any effort on our part for it to be filled with matters opposite of him. That's why the Apostle Paul, I think, in some degree, says in Ephesians 5 and verse 15 that we are to walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. He's saying if you don't buy up this opportunity, this season of life that God has given you simply to fear him and keep his commandments, if you aren't actively pursuing his will during this life, that being your whole purpose, the days are evil and something else is going to take that place. It just takes a lack of effort for unrighteousness to fill that void. And I think also what's at stake is a solidifying of our separation from God and a spirit of apathy and hard-heartedness. Consider that zeal is commanded and it must be for, fed and, and pursued. It's not something that, that just happens. It's something that takes a conscientious decision and effort that is put forth. And the reason why that space is not filled with righteous things, the reason why there is a void in some people's lives spiritually is because they're not zealous for the Lord. They need to be zealous and repent. As we read in Revelation 3 and verse 19 with the church of the Laodiceans, they were lukewarm and he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Likewise, the church in Ephesus have done many good things for the Lord. Nevertheless, they had left their first love and he calls them to remember from where they had fallen and repent and do the first works or else he'll remove their lampstand from its place. Zeal only occurs when the heart is actively filled with God's word. We're not going to be zealous unless we're filling ourselves with God's will. And the result of failing to fill that void with God's word is going to be a cold, hard heart that is just unresponsive to anything God says. I think that's what happened in Hebrews, the fifth chapter and sixth chapter. In verse 12, we know good and well the lack of diligence shown by that audience. By this time, he says, you ought to be teachers, but now you need someone to teach again the first principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Understand that the reason he brings this up is not simply to say, you should be teachers, but you're not teachers anymore. That was just one problem. Because chapter 6 continues in the context to show the potential evil that is there for them if they didn't go on to grow in Christ and be partakers of meat. Not just that you're not able to teach. That's a big problem. That's, that's one of the effects of this. But, but another effect is far greater and far more severe for them personally in their own faith. He said in verse 4 of chapter 6 that it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and has become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away uh, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Why does he bring that up? Because they had tasted the heavenly gift. They had been partakers of the word of God. But when they had that experience, it's quite obvious that it didn't touch their hearts enough. They weren't too excited about it. They certainly weren't zealous concerning it. And that's why they didn't grow. And he's saying if you're in that state of apathy, if the word of God doesn't affect you in a positive way, if the things you read about in scripture and the blessings you receive in Christ that are enumerated in places like Ephesians chapter one, if that doesn't do anything for you, if you don't get excited about that, if you're not on fire for the Lord in that regard, and that's manifested to a lack of growth over an expanse of time where you should have grown so much and been mature in Christ, then the danger is you're going to fall away. 
to the extent that no one can say anything to you that you don't already know that you haven't already rejected. You can't be renewed to repentance. He's not saying you can't repent. He's saying no one can renew you to repentance. Galatians 6 talks about bearing each other's burdens to go to a man overtaken in a trespass and restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is a context discussing a person that can't be restored by that spiritual person. Not that the spiritual person can't try, but you can't say anything to that person that would change anything in their life. They've got to make the decision. They've heard it all. The problem is they've rejected it. That's the danger. If we're not growing, if we're not filling the void, we're going to find ourselves, if we're not careful, in that place. And that place, Jesus describes as a place that is worse than the very beginning. In Matthew 12 and verse 45, he says, that spirit goes and brings with them seven others more wicked than himself and enters and dwells in the house. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And he applies it to these people. So it shall be with this wicked generation. We read of something similar in Second Peter chapter 2 about some false teachers who had partaken of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. They had been enlightened. They had been saved. Their sins were washed away, added to the body of Christ. But they came to a point where they rejected that and accepted the things the world had to offer. It says of them that it, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and have again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. He says even this, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. That's when we hear about the dog and the hog that they're like, returning to their own vomit or returning to the wallowing in the mire. That's what's at stake. That's why it's so important to fill ourselves with God's word, to to be invested in spiritual matters, to, to put our all into it, to make it real to each other. It's not something that should be we attend on one of the days of the week and it's just kind of the side item where work is the focus or or some other activity is the focus and this is something that is just set aside for one part of the week. That's the entirety of who we are. And if it's not the entirety of who we are, that's what's at stake. Evil will creep in and we'll get a cold, hard heart that won't be responsive to anything the Word of God has to offer. So how do we fill that void? Consider a few suggestions. How do we fill that void? It's there. If we've obeyed the gospel and come to Christ, perhaps you're a babe in Christ. There, there's stuff that needs to be put into your life, spaces that need to be filled. And if we're supposed to be continually growing in Christ, then we're supposed to be continually adding. We've got to continue to fill ourselves. How do we do that? How do we make sure that that space is filled with righteous matters and not with evil? That we grow in the Lord and solidify our hope in Him and not fall away? I think a basic and foundational point to be made concerning this, the first step, perhaps, is that we've got to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. We read of that in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, when in a context of suffering and doing good and suffering for doing good and, and giving answers to those who may ask us why we're continuing in doing good in spite of our suffering, he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I especially want to focus on that first phrase. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. The New American Standard Bible says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, which is essentially saying the same thing. What we've got to do is set Christ apart in our heart, give him a special place, a special place of rule. 
He is the king, and we have accepted and submitted voluntarily to his rule, but it requires to really think deeply about that and understand that he is in control of our life and give him that control. That's what he's saying. Set him apart. It's don't be afraid of these people causing you pain. Be afraid of your king. Submit to him. Don't be worried about pleasing them, worried about be being pleasing to, to these people, but be pleasing to Christ. Set him apart. Christ said in John 17 that he sanctified himself for our benefit, but there's also a side of that where we have to sanctify him in our hearts. He doesn't just jump into our hearts. We've got to let him into our hearts, sanctify him, give him a special place. And this is not just a mere verbal consideration that Jesus is the king of my life. How many people do we come across in this world who actually say that? He's my Lord, but Jesus addresses that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? They would suggest that they've sanctified him as Lord in their hearts. He says, no, you haven't. Because it's not just a verbal proclamation, but it is outwardly manifested. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. If I am king and you're allowing me to gain control in your life, it's going to show itself in obedience to his word. But I think also what this implies, sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts, is this readiness of mind that we read of in places like Acts 17 and verse 11. It is this understanding that he is king, and so whatever he tells me in his word, I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to fill my life with. There's no question. It's already been decided for me. If I read it in scripture, I'm going to do it. But that's what it takes to put Christ in that place, first and foremost. I think the Bereans had done this with Jehovah God in Acts 17, 11, when Paul and Silas are bringing this new doctrine, but they weren't willing to just completely dismiss it because they were claiming that it was from God. And so they had a, a predisposition. They had an alacrity about themselves. They had a willingness and a readiness to, if it was true, accept it. Luke records that these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And he says, therefore, many of them believed. Therefore, they believed. It points back to their mindset in listening to the gospel preached. They had a readiness. The Greek word is prothumia. And Arton Gingrich gave a good definition of this, I think. He defined it as exceptional interest in being of service, willingness, readiness, goodwill. I am fully interested, not apathetic, but on fire for doing what God wants me to do. And so I approach studying scripture with that predisposition. I've got a forward mind. It's a compound word, prothumos, forward mind or disposition. I'm ready to act. That's what it takes in order to fill our hearts with things which are righteous. Notice what the Apostle Paul mentioned to the Colossians in Colossians 2 and verse 6 as he was warning them about the wisdom of the world and following these, these ways of false teachers. He says, You therefore have received Christ as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. They had received Christ Jesus. They had become Christians. But he's saying, since you've received him in that way, you've You've submitted to his rule. You were baptized into his authority. You, you're under his kingship, under his lordship. You've received him as that position in your life. So now walk in him. Do it. And until you have that decision and you've yielded to his preeminence in the context, you've accepted that he is indeed Lord, that he is God manifested in the flesh, 
that he is going to have control of my life. Whatever I do in word or deed, chapter 3 and verse 17, I'm going to do all in his name, under his authority, under his guidance. Until that happens, you cannot abound, as he says, in him. Abounding in the faith, abounding in the word. The first step to filling that void with things of God is to sanctify the Lord in our hearts. But secondly, it's to exercise caution about what else goes in. And that started with saying whatever goes in is going to be by the Lord's authority. But then that has to manifest itself in a practical application. We've got to be selective consumers. We care about what we put into our hearts. In Proverbs 4 and verse 23, wisdom tells us to keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. We learn a few things in this verse that we have free will. We can keep our heart, guard our heart. We can decide what comes in. A lot of times people try to escape responsibility by suggesting it wasn't their fault. I'm born this way. It's something that I can't help. But God says you can keep your heart. He's given that into your control. You have the responsibility, but not only can you, but you have the obligation to keep your heart with all diligence. Sometimes I think we can fool ourselves as well, labeling things as small. This is a little thing. God doesn't really care about this. But every single thing we consume with our minds, with our hearts, is are things that are filling that void. Are they good or are they bad? That's why we've got to be cautious. What movies are we watching? What television programs are we consuming? Books are we reading? People are we around? Every little thing that we might see as small is actually of grave importance because it's taking that space in our spiritual lives. We've got to have careful analysis of all things to make sure that we don't fill ourselves with something that ought not to be there. Consider the words of David in Psalm 101 and verse 3. He says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. He's making a decision before he goes into any specific area of his life that if it's evil and God's word will give us that fact, it'll help us discern the good from the bad. If it is bad, I'm not going to mess with it. I'm not going to consume that. And he's going to be cautious with everything he comes across. Job did it as well in Job 31 and verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? He made an agreement with his eyes. He's He's saying that I'm, like David, not going to look on anything wicked. I'm not going to look on a woman to lust after her. I'm going to guard myself. If I see something, I'm bouncing my eyes because I'm not going to linger at that. I've made the decision beforehand, and I'm exercising caution. Everything that I do, everything that I see, everywhere that I go, is with this filter that is God's Word. I'm not going to consume anything wicked. And that requires sobriety. It requires... And awareness, it requires vigilance. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, we're to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Consider that in light of Paul's exhortation in Philippians 8, 4 and verse 8, rather. He encourages those brethren that whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, Whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. What are we thinking about? What are we pondering on? What's filling our minds from day to day? 
from the entertainment we consume to the people we're around to the to the ways we think about others. A lot of times we can poison the well of our mind with thinking about what may be the case with an interaction we've had with someone, with the way someone is. Well, I think maybe this is the case. And I think we've all been guilty of it. I think especially I have as well as is, is poisoning my mind and causing that to taint the way I see someone. And I'm not meditating on what is true, Philippians 4 and verse 8. That's not validated. That's not something that's been established as truth. Why dwell on something that's not true when it's set to poison your mind? Be a cautious consumer, a selective consumer. What that requires is this general pursuit of the things of Christ. Colossians 1, or chapter 3 and verse 1, puts it this way. If you are raised with Christ, obviously a reference to baptism, Seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. If that's our upward projection, then filling that void with good things is going to be made that much easier. I think what's included in this and that upward projection and being cautious about what we're putting into our lives and that especially as it's governed by the, the rule of Christ as king, whatever he authorizes is what we're going to consume it's going to lead us to make every opportunity we can to study God's word. That's what we should be filling our life with. The knowledge of it and the application of it. And this doesn't simply imply an exclusive concept of the regular worship service. That you be diligent to study just when you come together with other Christians. But this is an individual responsibility that is executed on a daily basis. It's our daily bread. And we need it each and every day. And so we need to make every opportunity we can to study. Consider that concept of diligence as is put forth by the pen of Paul in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The King James Version says, study to show yourself approved to God. And while that concept is in this context, the word is not study, it's diligence. And I think that this word and its understanding will really pull us toward the direction of being diligent students of God's word, being, being, being students of God's word that are active each and every day in that, not just when we assemble with the saints. The Greek word is spudazo, and Arton Gingrich gives this definition, to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation, to be zealous or eager, to take pains, to make every effort to be conscientious. This would include other periods besides a Sunday morning worship and a Sunday morning Bible class. We could call Sunday evening extracurricular, if you will. We could call Wednesday evening extracurricular. We could call women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies and gospel meetings extracurricular. But if we're really diligent, we're trying to make ourselves approved to God, consider that particular part of the definition. Are we making every effort? Are we taking pains to do it? And it does require some discomfort and it requires some sacrifice of time and other things. But that's what God expects us to do. We can't fill ourselves with God's word if we're only getting a little bit each Sunday morning. It's got to be constant and we can help each other in that as well. But first, we've got to develop a thirst for it. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, Peter writes, To lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, and as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, 
if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. This goes back to the context of Hebrews 6. They tasted the graciousness of the Lord, but obviously it wasn't too gracious for them because they stopped growing and they were in danger of apostasy, of a state that no one could say anything to them to change their minds because they've already rejected everything that could be said. Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? Have we taken in the word of God and been benefited by it and been encouraged by it and been drawn to it, been attracted to it? Well, don't let it sit there. Consume it. Develop that thirst and then start drinking. That's what we have to do. And redeeming the time is a part of that. Consider this in this regard. Zoe and I last night took our first Dave Ramsey class with several people who are members over at the 84th Street Congregation where we're trying to to get in our, our young married life this, this grips on financial obligations and responsibilities, know where our money's going and setting things up for the future and for our children and our children's children, just really trying to be fiscally responsible and be good stewards of God's money he's given to us and blessed us with. So we've got a budget. We've got to be selective consumers in regard to how we're using our money, use it wisely and know where it's going. But how much more important is that in regard to time? I think that we need to budget our time. I don't think that we always think of it in that regard, but I think we should. We, we make schedules for various things, but I think we should be just as, as set on and find just as much importance in budgeting our time as we do our money because that's something you can't get back. That's something that is indeed limited. And as Paul mentioned, and as we looked at before, the days are evil. And so if you're not budgeting your time, the evil is going to take those places. Fourthly, what we need to do in conjunction with this continuous study is faithful worship. That would include not forsaking the assembly as we see the Hebrew writer warns about and admonishes them concerning in Hebrews 10.24 to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But let me emphasize, this should be more than just a road appearance, that we're here because we always come here on Sunday morning, we always come here on Sunday evening, we always come here on Wednesday evening. When the meeting rolls around, we've made it a habit and we're always there. It's got to be more than that. That's the first step, making the appearance, not forsaking the assembly. Faithful worship, I think sometimes, especially in conversations with each other, we may be talking about, someone that is uh, someone we mutually have relationships with. We know someone in common, and, and we may refer to them as, as being faithful Christians because they're always there. They, they attend faithfully, but do they? They may well faithfully attend, but consider that worshiping faithfully, faithful attendance includes more than just being there. It includes deliberation. It includes an engaged mind, and it includes this disposition that is excited about the worship, not just there because they have to be there, but like the psalmist in Psalm 122 and verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And the gladness is there because I get to consume God's word. I get to partake in fellowship with God and with his people. I get to be there at the throne of God. I'm excited about it. And so every opportunity that presents itself to me, I'm not going to, to balk at it. I'm not going to hesitate. I'm going to schedule Everything around that, I'm going to make that my priority and focus. But not only that, when I get there, I'm going to ready my mind. I'm going to be prepared to actually engage in the worship. A lot of people 
are faithful attenders of worship in the sense of them being there, but really in reality, they're never really there. Their minds are wandering off. They're just kind of checking a list. Their appearance is more out of rote than faithfulness. Consider that in regard to the aspects of our worship. When we sing, Colossians 3.16 says, The word of Christ must dwell in us richly. That can't happen without an engaged mind. Ephesians 5 and verses 18 and 19 talk about being filled with the Spirit. That's what we're trying to do in this lesson. How do we fill ourselves with God's Word? And we make melody in our heart to the Lord. Singing the lyrics and hitting the notes perfectly is not the melody that God is talking about. It's a melody in our heart. In the Lord's Supper, we're to discern the Lord's body and therefore drink in a worthy manner. In the preaching, as we mentioned in Acts 17 and verse 11, that is the disposition we have, a readiness, a thoughtfulness, and an engaged mind in the preaching of the Word of God. We pray with the understanding, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15, and we give with the mindset of understanding how much Christ gave and then trying to emulate that in our liberal giving, not grudgingly or of necessity, but as one has purposed in his heart, because God loves a cheerful giver. That's worshiping faithfully. And that's the only thing that's actually going to fill the void. That's the only thing that's going to be substantive. We don't commune with God by some mystical presence of himself in these four walls. We commune with God and we benefit from what he has to offer us in such worship and in such study and in such singing and praying and all of these things by engaging our souls, by worshiping John 4.24 in spirit and in truth. And lastly, one of the ways we fill that void with good things is to be cautious, again, about our company. Maintain good company and avoid the evil company. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, the Apostle Paul said that evil company corrupts good habits. What we've got to do is as we've developed the taste for God's word and the things of righteousness and the things of the divine nature, what will come naturally with that is going to be a cultivation of a spirit that abhors those matters that are opposite him. In Romans 12 and verse 9, Paul said, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And that is certainly true in regard to the company that we keep. It'll manifest itself in that way. Those who enjoy being around sinfulness, and I'm not talking about going out of the world. First Corinthians 5 says we can't go out of the world. That's not what God would require of us. We've got to be in the world. We're the salt of the world. We're the light of the world. We're those who make a difference. We're, we're Christ's representatives, and we're trying to bring lost souls to him by our actions and our teaching. We can't go out of the world, but there's a difference between being in the world in that regard and not being of the world and being with sinners in their places and activities of sin. How many times have you heard someone say that Jesus associated with sinners? Jesus ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus involved himself with them, but he was never ever with them in the place of sin or engaged in the sin with them or even tolerating their sin to any degree. He abhorred their evil Consider Proverbs 8 and verse 13. It tells us that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Yes, if we fear God and if we love God, we're going to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. 
But consider also in Psalm 97 and verse 10, instruction given to those who love the Lord. He says, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. I want nothing to do with the sinful and their ways. I want to bring them to Christ, but I'm not going to go to their place of sin. I'm not going to be with them continually as they are dead set in their sinful ways. That will corrupt us. That void will be filled with their influence. Don't be deceived. That's what 1 Corinthians 15.33 says. Sometimes we try to trick ourselves, deceive ourselves into thinking we can be around these people without bringing up the gospel, without separating ourselves, making that obvious as a distinction, without trying to teach them the word of God, without pointing out their evil, that we're just around them and we can be around them without them affecting us. They won't influence me. I'm too strong as a Christian. Evil company corrupts good habits. If we're filling our time with evil company, it's only a matter of time when our habits will be filled with the habits they themselves possess. And therefore, on the flip side, to fill the void with good things, we need to be around those who share the same values, beliefs, and principles in the gospel. Proverbs 27 and verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. That's why it was seen in the wisdom of God to institute the church and to bring the precept of assembling on the first day of the week. That the church would regularly come together and even in Acts chapter 2 we read that they came together daily because iron sharpens iron. We're here to help each other get to heaven, to stir up love and good works and Christians should be involved with each other not just in the assembly but outside of the assembly in secular matters, but especially in matters of study and consumption of God's word, helping each other get to heaven, that's how we're going to fill the void. We live in a world chock full of sin. We're those who are the, the first fruits. We're the, the small fraction of righteousness in the earth. And so how much more time should we be spending together in order to help each other fill each other with righteous things according to God's word? When we have grown by subtraction from sin, We've eradicated those evil things in our life. The next step is of necessity growing by filling that void, adding God's word to our heart. Those people in Matthew 12 were in a pretty good position. They saw the demon cast out and they said, could this be the son of David? That's when Jesus warned them that this generation will be like that man that had that demon exercised, didn't do anything to fill that void. And his latter end was worse than the beginning. Had seven others that are even more wicked than the first. They were individuals who didn't fully pursue Jesus. They didn't consume his teaching and truly become his disciples, leaving father, mother, brother, sister, job, all of those things to actually become a disciple of Christ and consume his teaching both in knowledge and in practice. And Jesus warned them that if you don't fill that void with good things, then it's certainly going to be filled with evil. How much more should that be applied to us today? And so I encourage you to be diligent in pursuing the things of God to fill your life with those matters in all diligence. If you're here this evening not having obeyed the gospel, the first step, though, for you is to grow by subtraction. And the only way that sin can be subtracted from your life is through the blood of Christ, and that's reached in baptism. And then you'll become a new life, and you'll be set to abound more and more being filled with God's will and growing closer to the divine nature as you seek to get to heaven. If we can assist you in that, we want to extend the invitation to you. 
And if there's any other spiritual matter that we can assist anyone with this evening, come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.